SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 51 with guest Connor Cunningham. Today is Connor Cunningham. Connor is a principal architect on the SQL Server team. While many listeners will have come across Connor in relation to query processing and query optimization, lately he's been mostly working in a breadth architect role. Specifically, he's been focusing on Windows Azure SQL databases, or formerly known as SQL Azure. Connor's been working with the largest customers and finding ways to make them successful by improving the overall architecture of the platform, and in particular, he's been improving customer guidance and tooling. So, welcome, Connor. Hi, thanks for having me. And so what I get everyone to do the first time they're on is just tell us, how how do you ever come to be involved in this in the first place? Uh, so for those of you who are familiar with my prior work, I spent a lot of time working on query processors uh, for Microsoft and SQL Server, and I still do that to some extent. But uh, it so happened at one point a few years ago we, we had a internal organizational change, and we decided that we needed to go fix a few things in order to get two different teams to merge together properly. And you kind of look around at one point and say, hey, uh, there's no one to do this problem, this problem, or this problem. And then you, before you know it, you volunteered. So <laughs> I was essentially volunteered to go work on some areas that were new and also needed my particular skill set. Uh, it's yep. nice in some ways because you get to try different things, but it also means that a lot of the core assumptions that you've been thinking about for a long time get to change, and it's actually a very fun time to be an architect because every day uh, I like to describe it as a target-rich environment. And mm-hmm. it is one of those things where when you start looking at different parts of the problem space, uh, there's neat things to do. So there are some features that we haven't released yet that I was specifically asked to go and shepherd into this new framework and what became uh, Windows Azure SQL Database, or commonly yep. SQL Azure. And we will um, be releasing some of those over the next few months. And so my expertise in those particular areas led me into discussions about uh, the customer experience, the surface area. We have this role that we call the application administrator or the app admin, which is sort mm-hmm. of part of what a DBA does in the regular SQL Server uh, nomenclature. And so I sort of spent a lot of time thinking about what would that role do and how do they interact with the system and what should be the layers and the boundaries and the contracts that we expose in order to make that successful. And some of that functionality Mm -hmm. is starting to leak out uh, each month when we release, and uh, others will come out in future months when we get to the point where the individual improvements are done. Look, early early on with SQL Azure, I had um, a a feeling that it was – Almost like a very divergent set of code from the uh, the main SQL Server code, but lately I get the feeling it's very uh, very much all back back on a single track. Is that pretty much the case? Uh, the original work that was done on SQL Azure was done with a branch of the code, but it was still mm-hmm. underneath. It was SQL Server, as you would call it, uh, with yep. layers above and layers below and things like this. And uh, we still are not at the point where I'd say the architecture uh, is final, uh, yep. but we are still uh, we we do have one code base, and, uh, and then there's pieces that are added to sort of run our cluster architecture. And mm-hmm. I, I think that what you'll find is that the policies that we have for SQL Azure will be a little different than what you would see in, say, Enterprise SQL Server. But over yep. time, more and more of those things will start to look and smell similar to what you'd expect uh, from a box product equivalent installation that you'd be trying to do. Yeah. And so, look, maybe if we – I'll wander through, look, I think some of the most common questions I get asked when, when going out and talking about this. and. The, the very first question I get from people all the time is they say, isn't this just a hosted copy of SQL Server? 
Right. So this is a wonderful question, and it boils down to what are you trying to get out of building a different thing? Uh, hmm. I think that the answer is more complicated than is it just hosted SQL Server. I think if you look at the different strategies that are being employed by the different competitors in the market, there are some who are trying to sell you infrastructure, meaning they're going to basically give you a VM on some hosted piece of hardware, and then you yep. install whatever you want on it. Microsoft mm -hmm. is taking a slightly different approach. Uh, we've viewed this as an opportunity to rethink what does it mean for us to interact with our customers, and how do we make it so that we can greatly reduce the overall costs to them to be able to use our product. If you have a VM, you end up having to install patches and understand exactly what versions are there and, and really worry about all the things that are associated with the traditional virtualized notion of a machine. Yeah. And, so and, and the same, same things you've got to worry about with a physical machine too. And, and that's the, uh, it's kind of, a, I, I find it intriguing that I think in general, I mean, businesses really don't want to know about patches and operating systems and things like that. Well, I mean, we've kind of made them want to know about that or have to know about that, but I, I think they really don't want to. Yeah, it's a cost of doing business. And when you look at Microsoft's strategy with SQL Azure, it's basically a platform story where we're selling you a database. And we're going to work on building up the distinction between what is infrastructure and what is a platform so that you can say, hey, I want to just get a database, and then I want you to worry about guaranteeing to me that the patches are installed on the right time schedule and that I don't have downtime when you're installing patches and that I also have uh, the right behavior from the system in terms of what physical capacity I get for each of the resources that I need. And this story is still very much being built, but fundamentally we're in the process of building a story to make it easier for you to go from zero to a solution and overall lower the cost of labor required for the people using our software. Ultimately, those mm -hmm. savings will mean that you're going to be able to pass those on to your customer, and that's, that's a good thing in our mind. We think that it's a good time to disrupt the market, and we're, we're very excited to do so. Look, the next thing that people tend to ask, I suppose, is the is it reliable question. So underneath we have, uh, it is SQL Server, right? So all the things that you know and love about what makes SQL Server great uh, deal with, uh, you know, does it, does it finish transactions to do this? All the code is the same. Now there's some pieces of policy code which exist right now in SQL Azure which relate to uh, throttling, for example. And we put this in while we're building some of the fancier technologies required to be able to support multi-tenancy on our platform. Yep. We should probably explain that for a moment for the listeners so they understand what... Yeah, I was going to say, too, it's interesting when I look at the pricing, the pricing tends to encourage multi-tenancy. Right. So there's, there's two levels of multi-tenancy here. The first level is that if you're building a solution on SQL Azure, um, Microsoft will put more than one database from more than one customer on the same physical back-end machine. And there's yep. a number of reasons for this, but many solutions in virtualized environments don't really need a whole machine. And in the infrastructure world, to continue the analogy, you're going to pay for a VM for each one of those solutions, essentially. Uh, you can get fancy, of course, and try to combine them yourself, but it's, they're different solutions and you don't know who they are. It's hard to combine them in a safe way, especially if they're different customers. Microsoft is doing all that for you by basically giving you a database instead of a virtual machine, and then we're going to pass on the savings to you eventually. Um, the, the other aspect that is interesting is that when you get down to – we were talking about the reliability aspect, yes? Yes. Yeah, so when we get down to what does it mean in order to get to fully reliable databases, you need to have some of the technologies that we've baked in so far, and we need to add a few more things there. And there's some features that haven't come out yet that will help improve what does it mean to be, quote, unquote, reliable. The multi-tenancy aspect when you start getting to reliability is you have multi-tenancy at the machine level and multi-tenancy at the level of when I build a solution, what is the kind of paradigm that I can use to build applications that are interesting in this? And there's a whole section that we can talk about where um, the types of people building application solutions on SQL Azure, especially the larger ones, are things that really can't be easily built on regular SQL Server. So we call these cloud service vendors, and they're kind of the analogy of, a, of an ISV in the box world. Yep. Yeah. And look, so I suppose there's reliable. Um, the other big question in that same area that they usually follow up with is, is it secure? And right. the concern is around security and privacy. 
Yeah, so this is a great question. Uh, so let's enumerate some of the concerns that people can have, right? Some people uh, may not want to or may not be willing, uh, able to store sensitive data in someone else's environment, independent of whose it is, right? So it could yep. be this, you need to have it on your physical premises because you're a bank or a government agency. I mm -hmm. believe that um, Microsoft will provide solutions for that space over time, and not all the offerings yes. have been announced yet, but fundamentally we obviously want to work with our partners in those industries to make sure that they have solutions that work for them. I can tell you, because yep. I work regularly with the security guys, uh, and they sometimes are uh, saying no to me as I try to do new things and new features in the platform, <laughs> that Microsoft takes security extraordinarily seriously, and we spend a lot of time with some very, very smart people working through what are the details about how do we secure passwords from end to end, how do we provide fully integrated security experiences to make sure that we don't um, you know, have too many people with access to, the, to your data. And I think that you'll find that there will be very published um, policies and certifications that Microsoft achieves to demonstrate that its cloud platform follows the highest rigors of, um, of corporate behavior in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. Actually, the it's interesting that often when I see people concerned about this, in the, the next breath, though, I often look at how they've implemented security and things themselves, and it, it's usually quite poor. So uh, that it sort of surprises me often that they have uh, the, the level of concern they seem to show with some of that. Well, um, and the same thing with... Go, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing happens with the reliability. Uh, the vast majority of customers I go into, I look and I think the people managing the Azure platform are, on their worst day are going to do a better job than than almost every site I walk into anyway. I, I think that you're probably right in both regards. People have concerns sometimes about large companies or storing things in other countries. And ultimately, Microsoft's going to have to demonstrate through its track record that it's serious about this. I think if you look at the things that we've done in terms of security patches over the past several years compared to our competitors, you'll find that Microsoft's track record, specifically in SQL Server, is very, very, very good. It's rare that we have to do a security patch anymore, and that's a very strong statement, and it's because we, we take that role very seriously. Some of our competitors yeah. have a few more of those without naming names, and I think that you'll find that if we keep working on that regard and have that same dedication that we've shown over the past five or ten years in that area, that will hopefully continue to gain the, the trust of more and more customers. Yeah, I think um, another one that would be interesting to raise at this point, I suppose, is the other one that comes up is the whole latency story. And this is around the idea that I don't have the things on my premises. And so what does concern me, I see a lot of material, uh, let's say maybe more marketing oriented, that, that seems to sort of suggest you can take things and just redirect connection strings and, and hope for the best. And and from what I see in, in most applications, that's, that's just not the case. Um, I, I find that there is um, architectural work that needs to be done to get a good outcome. Uh, Greg, that's, that's a good point. I think that anytime you introduce a long link between any of the tiers in a solution, you're going to find that the application either is sensitive to it or not sensitive to it. Uh, yeah. If you have a very chatty application and that link is now 100 milliseconds each round trip and you're, you're assuming that it was 2 milliseconds, you're going to notice that difference no matter who's selling you solutions where. So I think that you're going to find that for many reasons, not just latency, there's actually a lot of things that you're going to want to think about before you decide to use the SQL Azure platform. There are real benefits that can be achieved by using it, but it's unfair to describe it as a one-to-one drop-in replacement to what you have in, in SQL Server. And so describing it as hosted SQL Server probably isn't really what you want to do. We, we do have yeah. a, an infrastructure as a service solution, a SQL in a VM solution that's in preview mode right now, which is more of a drop-in one-to-one replacement. But even then, you still have to be careful of where is the latency and how am I having my different tiers talk to each other? So if I have my yeah. application tier and it's not co-located with my data tier, you're probably going to notice that. And some of the applications that I work with, we have to spend a lot of time worrying about each millisecond to try to find a way to make sure that that thing can be onboarded properly 
onto mm. either the SQL um, IAS platform or onto SQL Azure itself, and and that's an ongoing effort for us. But you're right; it, it would be it would be wrong to say that you can just turn a switch and things would just work, especially when you're pushing yeah. your your database out to some data center that might be 250 milliseconds away from you. Yeah, yeah. I think a good example I saw the other day. In fact, uh, I had somebody who was trying it and they had a database creation script and they said, oh, this is terrible because they sort of ran the creation script against their local database and it took, I don't know, 52 seconds or something like that. They pointed it at uh, Windows Azure SQL database and literally even to the nearest data center, it took about one hour and 52 minutes. Uh, and they were saying, hey, this is ridiculous. But But what was interesting is I then got them to export the same database, uh, it was only about 20 meg, but I got them to export the same thing as a backpack, copy that up to Azure Storage, and then import it, and the whole process took less than a minute. Yeah, so we have this solution for import-export that uses backpacks, um, and this is still a new technology, and we're still in the process of sort of getting the rough edges uh, cleaned up on it. But yeah. fundamentally, this is a way for you to pass up a blob and then all of the notion of, of dealing with latency for each of the round trips for what is effectively a chatty application, meaning uh, regular BCP or regular T-SQL script execution where you have every single statement as a go, then you, you're right. That's exactly why we have it. We want to make it so that experience yeah. is as seamless as possible and ultimately transacted. Yep. Yeah, I think the, it, what struck me is I think there are usually solutions they're just not uh, just reproducing exactly the same solution that you used to use. And uh, and so yeah, you often have to rethink, I think, when, whenever you do have lots and lots of little round trips. Uh, and, of course, the worst offenders I see are, again, a site I was at uh, a couple of days ago, and, I mean, again, as you said, extremely chatty applications. The uh, I, th I think the endless cursor fetches, I mean, let me go and do 90,000 remote procedure calls to bring up the first page of the app, you know, that, that sort of thing. It's, yeah, uh, you really want to just think not about the pattern. It's just one one call, one round trip gets you the page view is, is your ultimate goal for a lot of these. And if yeah. you can get down to the point where you have a very small number of page pages, you're being very deliberate in your architectural organization, especially across tiers, you can end up with a solution that works great. And we have several customers yeah. that have developed um, either Greenfield solutions or they've had a, an application that was pretty close architecturally to what needed to happen in order for them to be, to be successful, and they've been able to throw it up there and make a lot of progress really quickly. But people who have applications that were um, legacy, sometimes they ported from an ISAM application and they, they didn't necessarily mm. be architect the first time they went to SQL Server. They're having more trouble and we're having to spend more time working with them to sort of step back, look at the application all up, and then say, what is it going to take for you to be successful? Yeah. Yeah, I think another interesting one with latency too is I've been encouraging them wherever they're based and whichever IS. ISP they're using for connecting to the internet to go and literally test uh, latency across to the different data centers too because I've seen people making the assumption that the closest physical data center is going to be the lowest latency and of course that's ju just not the case in, in many cases. Right. In Australia and in several parts of you know the Pacific Rim obviously we have some links that are faster than others. Uh, there's a data center that we have in Singapore, we have data center in Hong Kong and then we have a data center that recently opened up in uh, the Western United States. And I think yeah. that you'll find that these uh, have different speeds based on what path your ISP has chosen. And we've Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like we found uh, when I was doing testing off uh, Telstra's, one of the local ones uh, in Brisbane, I tried when I was there the other day. And yeah, the Singapore one was certainly the, the quickest one with the, the Hong Kong one a little bit beyond that. But it was interesting. I have friends in New Zealand were saying uh, the Western U.S. ones actually were closer than the Southeast Asian ones yeah. uh, in terms of latency. Right. And obviously, it's something that we look at and we do some regular testing on. And if customers find that they, they think it's way out of whack, we encourage them to contact us so we can obviously look at it. But mm. I think that ultimately, you're going to find, as we add more data centers and more capacity, that we'll, we'll keep trying to find ways to make our customers successful. Because ultimately, we don't make any money unless the customer is able to build a solution that makes sense to them, right? So yeah. this is to our benefit as well as yours to figure this out. Yeah. And so, I, I, well, I suppose we can get a list of data centers at the moment from what's in the drop-down list when you go to create a server. But um, 
So um, for people just who haven't tried that, so roughly what sort of number of data centers are available at present? Right. So we have, I think, eight data centers that are uh, publicly available for people to use. Mm -hmm. There are four in the United States uh, that they're labeled north, south, east, and west. And yep. uh, you can perhaps figure out how a little, bit, a little bit more precision exactly where they are, but fundamentally yeah. they're in different regions of those of that country. We have two mm -hmm. in Asia, as I mentioned. We have one in Singapore and one in Hong Kong. Um, yep. And then we have two in Europe as well, uh, one in uh, Northern Europe, I think, and another one in Western yeah, Europe. Yeah, I think it said North Europe, South Europe, yeah, something, something like something, that. Something along those lines. But basically, mm. if you're in far Eastern Europe, I think that you have there's some countries that are beyond 250 milliseconds from one of those two. But uh, yep. in general, most of Western Europe is covered right now with that. And there's also some parts of the rest of the world that have fast links to other spots uh, so that they're close to at least one data center. So if you're not in one yeah. of those regions of the world and you're interested in trying SQL Azure, please try creating a database in each of them and just see what the, the ping times are, and you'll find that, for yeah. example, uh, some of the places in South Africa might be able to connect to the one in San Antonio, the, the one in southern United States, yeah. for example. Yeah, I found uh, one of the things that seemed to be easiest was just uh, to turn on client statistics and management studio or something and execute a query you know, like select some constant that just doesn't have any query execution time, and then just simply look at the uh, the, the times, and it, yeah, it, it becomes very clear when you look at it. This is actually a good point, Greg. There's a lot of things that are going to be a little different about troubleshooting in this new world, and one of the areas mm. that we've been looking at very closely and making some investments has to do with uh, the client side view of the world and figuring out how to make that a bit more turnkey. Because if you have a link difference in terms of uh, how far, where, where's your database server and where's your client, being able to have great tracing from the client side or on the top of the SQL client code, for example, is really important to be able to get a handle on what is my view of the world from the perspective of my application and what is the view of the world from the perspective of the backend database. And if you have both of those that are nice and clean, then you can understand, well, what's the link cost there? We've also had to get a lot better at our statistics because the behavior of certain networks, especially in shared networks, tends to be interesting. You get uh, this exponential distribution of timings for traffic, right? So you have an average time, mm -hmm. and then you have to start thinking about what's the tail on that distribution because it's not just here's the average and there's a Gaussian distribution. It's actually exponential, meaning that the time for the, the 95th percentile and the 99th percentile and the 99.9th percentile might be very interesting and they might be very, very large. And so you yeah. have to think about that and then understand is your application able to handle that tail, or is that a fundamental problem? And, and what does it have to be in order for your application to be successful? Hmm. Well, listen, one of the things that I think would be good to tackle, too, is that I get a lot of people seem to think that this is based on some sort of supercomputer type thing, but just trying to point out that that, that isn't the case, that uh, it, it's very much, uh, much more sort of standard hardware that things are based on. Right. So I think that one way to describe this, and this tends to work for most of the customers I've worked with so far, is fundamentally if you were to buy a regular SQL Server box, and let's just say your application is wildly successful, eventually you run out of capacity on whatever machine that you bought, and you have to throw that machine out and buy another one, typically you know, a larger one, right? And then you keep that yep. process going, and every time you get to the capacity limit of your machine, you buy a bigger one, and it's not linearly more expensive. It's probably more than linear, right? could be exponentially more expensive. Yeah. SQL Azure is using commodity hardware, and it's sort of bridging the gap by software. And we're trying to figure out how do you get to the point where we can use great machines that are great on a price-performance basis, but not set up to be servers otherwise. So they have, yeah. they have plenty of disks. They have um, you know, plenty of memory. But they're fundamentally the, the pizza boxes that you put in the rack. They're not huge database mm -hmm. machines. And ultimately, this difference will save customers money because the cost of running these machines is much, much lower, or requiring them as well, than buying one of these big database machines that we've had in the past. And so a lot of the differences that we have to deal with these days are the fact that this is a scale-out platform and not a scale-up platform. And the machines are commodity, so we have uh, high availability built in via software to help us have multiple redundant copies of your data under the assumption that the machines are going to die more frequently, and we're just going to magically move them around to some other cluster machine. 
And we have a, yeah. a huge, huge racks of these machines now, and the question is, how do we use them to maximum effect to make our customers successful? Yeah. And so maybe uh, one thing that would be interesting, I suppose, is just to spend a few minutes talking about roughly how does load balancing happen. Sure. So let's describe what load balancing is for customers, and then we'll talk about the current state and then uh, mm. what, what works and what doesn't work with it. So if you recall earlier in the conversation, we talked about the fact that we store more than one customer database on the same physical machine, usually. Yep. And what ends up happening is that at some times, um, a particular database may be completely cold and not no one's touching it at all, and it doesn't matter. It's just using up disk space but no other resources. And other customers can use the resources in the machine, and life is great because this allows Microsoft to make money, and it also allows us to offer a lower price point for our customer. Now, yep. let's say that we can't predict exactly who's going to be busy at any given time. It'd be great if we could try to even out the load across all the machines that we have in our cluster so that customers all have a decent experience. We don't want one machine to be completely overloaded so that your queries are, are blocking all the time waiting for CPU. We want to move you to another machine so that you're able to get a reasonable performance all the time and no one is being treated unfairly. So we have a component that's called the load balancer that moves things from place to place. And the way that it does that typically is by utilizing the fact that our high availability solution has three copies of your database. And those three copies are stored in three different machines on three different racks. And whenever we decide that it's time to balance out the load, we run the load balancer and say, okay, it would be great if we moved these three databases to other, to, to move from their primary to their secondary. And we'll switch which is the primary node. And this process will even out the load on the system. So this is great when it works, and there's a few cases where we're still uh, working to improve this so that the customer experience is better. One thing that I'll mention here is that SQL Azure has a feature that when it does this, it'll basically do a failover. And just like a failover on the box, you have to reconnect. So we teach customers yeah. in our best practices that they need to have code that's able to go and reconnect so that they can take advantage of this. And what's fundamentally happening is we're pointing you at a different machine so that you can get the load on that other machine instead of the machine that you were on before. The same process is what happens when a machine dies. We just fail over to another machine, and then uh, we'll build a third replica if the machine actually uh, was was completely dead. So this load yeah, what I've, I've been go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say what I've been mentioning to a number of people too. It's, it's they seem surprised about retry logic, but in, in most enterprises I go into, they should already have something. Uh, like that as part of their architectural design. It, it, I always think it's sad when I see people have spent uh, a fortune on sort of highly available systems, yet the minute they fail over like they're designed to, sort of every application in the building breaks. And uh, and 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 I just think you know that's just very poor. And and because the the people doing the development could have dealt with that. Uh, you're right that not a lot of people are great at doing retry logic. Um, and I'd say that. Even you know, most of the code that I've looked at uh, is not really written perfectly. But on the other hand, we at Microsoft have an opportunity to try to make it easier for customers to not have to write that code. Mm. So uh, I, I tend to empathize a lot with the customer experience and what's the total time to solution and how much work do we have to do. And uh, maybe in the future we'll be able to deliver some solutions where the actual amount of work required is, is not much different than SQL Server Box, and even the SQL Server Box experience might be such that you don't have to think about that quite as much if you write your code the right yeah. way. Yeah. I, I kind of like to, um, rather than just start a transaction, do a bunch of work, uh, hope for the best and commit, I, I, I kind of normally like to see code that sort of says, you know, while we haven't committed this, you know, let's try and do this, but and and it's not that much different to the original code. But at least then, if I have things like uh, it's on a cluster and the server fails over, or if I have uh, I don't know, even if I have a deadlock or something like that, that that I could choose to take an action um, based on that. That I just think you end up with a more reliable system overall. If 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 your approach is to try and sort of massage the transactions in rather than just assume they'll go in. I think that one, one thing that we haven't really done a great job of of late is teaching customers uh, what's the best practices they should use for how do they organize the communication between tiers, right? Some cases mm. it's because you, you want to be able to figure out what's the exact transaction boundaries, as you were implying. In other cases, yep. it's 
what's the policy for when you have deadlocks or you, you have a failover? How do you avoid losing some of your work and making sure your application is responsive mm. to that? And, and then finally, we have this, what's the way that we can make it so it's easy to understand the code and make sure that it's technically correct? Because um, not all customers are SQL Server experts, and that's okay. We have to figure out ways to make it so that everyone can use our product. And uh, mm. while we obviously have some people like yourself who are experts at using the product and think very, very deeply about the end-to-end -end solution, we also have some customers that are still learning, and we have to figure out ways to make it so that they don't end up um, impacting themselves without knowing it. So mm. this is an area that I spend a lot of time thinking about because I, I think that having a beautiful customer experience is really important, and there's a couple of things here in the SQL yeah. Azure space that we still have to improve. And I suppose you started to touch on throttling there, so I suppose we should tackle that one because that's a, a topic that tends to come up. Sure. And so more so than just the retries, like the sorts of things that would tend to currently lead them into a, into potential throttling. So let's describe what throttling is since not everyone may have experienced it uh, so far. So because SQL Azure is multi-tenant, we, we don't, have the ability to block everyone from running at the same time. So there are some cases where we'll overload a particular machine on I.O., and we haven't necessarily been able to run the load balancer yet to move load around. So we have cases where we might say, you know what, we have too much I.O. on the system. In order to protect even the fundamental cluster health, we have to prevent new I.O. requests from going in. So we'll start returning errors or, or blocking new requests until the existing load on the server backs down. This is an imperfect solution. I don't think anyone would tell you that this is yeah. what we want customers to see. And the way yeah. that I would describe this is um, throttling will always exist in any multi-tenant system. And you've probably seen this in the box where eventually you get out of memory conditions or things like this. It's just that they, they surfaced in different ways. Long term, we need to provide different options for our customers to be able to write their code so that it works reliably. They don't have lots and lots of errors to deal with. And mm. we're in the process of putting together some offerings there that I'm excited to be able to tell you about in the future, but not today. Mm. Uh, I would say that throttling is something you have to deal with right now, and you basically have a big retry loop just like you do for reconnects. And yep. as soon as you get that into your code, things should work just fine in SQL Azure with few exceptions here and there where systems are horribly overloaded. And we're working very hard on making sure that we provide a lot of the internal mechanisms that give you fairness um, so that throttling becomes increasingly rare. And I think that would be the way that, that I would describe it. Today, mm -hmm. the early Good. versions of SQL Azure have this, didn't have that much isolation at all. And we've been working on building more and more isolation, which is similar in many ways to what a shared system like an old mainframe system would provide to you. And yeah. once you have that in place, then uh, you'll have some cases where maybe we will uh, end up being over-provisioned on a machine but we'll be able to plan for those a lot better. And in many cases, we'll be able to give customers uh, different options to let them say, hey, I'd like to make sure that I guarantee certain amounts of resources are available so that I never get yep. old. Yeah. Actually, I noticed that even over the time I've been using it, uh, the, the number of scenarios that seem to lead to that seem to have been getting less and less. And so the, in fact, I think I noticed that there was something they said about October or something last year that they, they finally they were killing off uh, CPU load throttling because they'd introduced Resource Governor into it or something. So there seemed to be like more proactive things they were doing to try and and uh, l limit the possibility of those things happening. Yes, this is an area of much focus for us, and you'll mm. hopefully see continued improvement each month as we get individual pieces of this technology out the door. But you shouldn't see too much CPU throttling anymore. I think we've pretty much disabled it at this point. But there are still yeah. now, now you do have cases where, just like on the box, you can have SOS scheduler yields, for example. So yeah. there are cases where in the past the SQL Azure would get exuberant and just kill things. And now what's happening is it's working more and more like the box product does, where you have to look for your DMVs mm -hmm. and see what the blocking is and tune your application at the logical level, which is probably more yeah. to our liking. And even then, we can still work on improving that experience. But that's, that's the... Mm -hmm. That's the model that I think will translate for people who are using the box product today. Yeah. Actually, that is something I suppose we should then tackle is that uh, for particularly for people that haven't started using it much, the what do you get when you start provisioning things? So maybe the concept of a logical server and, and where databases are and the kind of master that's there and so on. 
Right. So I'll preface this by saying that the SQL Azure model is still being evolved. Um, so there's some pieces yeah. of it that might change over the course of the next year or two. But uh, you create a subscription, and then you create a logical server. Logical server is not a real server to us. It's not a VM. It's just an organizational mm. construct. And um, it happens to be where you store some of your security credentials. And there's a database called master, which is the logical master. We store yep. the security credentials. And then on top of that, you can create regular databases. And what you're really dealing with are databases. And like the contained database model on the box, um, we have a similar thing in SQL Azure. They're not exactly identical at this point, but over time they'll, they'll probably converge. Yep. And you create Actually, a, we should mention, too, that you don't choose the name of the server, that that's something that's allocated as well. Right. It's it's not something that you get to pick, and, and we're, it's a shared mm. database, so you have a DNS entry for it, and it points to a logical uh, a cluster, so you're able to get all of those things hooked up, and that, that's generated. So they usually have 10 characters today, and uh, it has a common prefix. So you have a your server name, instead of being whatever your local NetBIOS name is on your local LAN or your local DNS name, is actually a DNS name that essentially we provide for you out of our clusters. And then the database name, you can create whatever database name you want, and it's in that namespace. So that's, yeah. it's a namespace, which is actually perhaps the most interesting correlation to the regular box world. Yeah. And so even the databases on a logical server could conceivably be easily be on different machines. Uh, yes, in fact, there's no guarantees that your master is on the same machine as you either. So there's yeah. you're generally just spread around like peanut butter, um, and you're moved around as the load balancer says that uh, this machine is more or less busy. So you're going to find that really uh, it's a programming construct, not a guarantee of physical co-location. Hmm. Yeah, that's correct. And so the next section of that... Uh, which we'll probably do a lot more on another day, but just, I suppose, basic concept that federations have been introduced recently as well. Right. So federations is a concept that is uh, also going to probably be evolved more, but it's effectively trying to make it easy for you to deal with uh, the fact that since you have these commodity machines, you're eventually going to reach the limit of what one of these databases can do. Our current database size limit is 150 gigabytes. And it will never be as big as whatever the largest database is that you can create on SQL Server because you need a scale-up machine with a huge storage array to be able to handle that. And that's not the kinds of machines that we're buying for our clusters. So Federation yeah. tries to make it easier for you to deal with the fact that you have a whole bunch of databases that are masquerading as one database for typically OLTP applications. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services, and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track, or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www. So one of the things I did want to ask you about is the idea that because the platform is evolving and, and I noticed that it uh, even the interfaces and things seem to change every few months and so on, uh, what is the, the thinking, you think, in terms of guidance where people need to plan for working over the top of a platform that isn't completely static? Right. So we're used to this world where we ship software every three years and we maybe later adopt the version that Microsoft shipped and everything had these very strong contracts. And we'll still have versions where you can snap to that if you'd like to. I think you'll find that we'll have some features that we start shipping which will help customers manage what version of my application I'm programming against. And it would probably be somewhat similar to how you think about programming against the .NET framework where you pick a particular version, and then you write code against that, and then mm -hmm. can validate that later. But we, we are fundamentally shipping software regularly, like every month, and sometimes we'll be changing some things along the way. I think what you'll find is we have some portions of our API which are fully supported, and those will be fairly stable, and there'll be other portions where we're still evolving them, and they'll be marked as preview or something like that. And, and yep. in this space, if you want to play with the new features, you can... Uh, wait until they are done and fully supported, or you can use them early and potentially use them to your advantage, but you also might have to take a um, 
step back occasionally and fix some things. It's not mm. our intent to try to make it difficult to use the platform. We're just trying to get to the point where we're interacting with our customers on a much quicker basis than we were before. Sometimes we've shipped features in the past in the box where uh, they do 80% of what was needed, but because of our engineering model, we weren't really able to see that that last 20% was actually where all the value was. And yeah. That then it's just too late because we've had to bake it for years and we, it's just we can't fix it. In, in this model, uh, it's very interesting because uh, we're effectively rewriting the engineering book as we go to say, hey, look, let's go work with some customers uh, up front and bake the feature, get it to the point where we're quite happy with it, and then we'll ship it for general availability. So you'll actually see that we'll do work uh, internally where we're going to partner with just one customer and they'll be able to build stuff for a little while internally until they get it working. And then we'll say, aha, we've learned that we need to change our feature, and then we'll build the final version of it. Yeah. And so maybe we should summarize, too, just uh, where the feature levels are at in the current version of the product compared to the box product. Sure. I think that you'll find that things are not exactly the same. Uh, they're, they're never really are going to be exactly the same. We, we essentially surface just this database concept, not a whole server concept. So... You don't have the ability to do cross-database queries today. Uh, there's yep. a whole set of things that, that aren't there, right? There's no service broker, um, no distributed queries. Actually, I did get a question from one of the guys in New Zealand uh, specifically about that one as to whether that is something that's likely to appear. I mean, you can never talk specifics, but, I mean, is that sort of on the radar or is it a long, long way away? Uh, so let's let's back up. There's a question of will it ever be exactly the same as the box, and I think the answer would be no. There will be some surface that we do not take away from the box, uh, independent of which feature we're talking about. Now, in SQL Azure today, there's already a feature called Service Bus, which effectively yes. does the same thing as broker queues. So I think that there is a solution for customers who want to do transactional queuing right now, and it yep. works fine. So I talk with that team regularly, and they're working really, really hard on it. So the way I would phrase that is first look at the broker queue stuff, um, and then look at service bus, see is there an actual delta where uh, other than programming surface, you can't build the solution that you want. And if there's something that's yep. missing there, then we'd like to talk about it. And that's probably the way that the broker question should be answered. Uh, yeah. But more broadly, there's this set of features that we will – either have to build replacements for or figure out other paradigms that you can use to solve the same problem, and we'll be surfacing those over time. I don't think that there's a strict time frame for when we'll have any given feature out. Mm. We prioritize based on what's necessary for us to go to the market and be successful, and obviously we want to help our customers with all the things that are missing in our platform. But the, the way that um, when I first looked at this, right, it, it, as a box guy, uh, it was very easy to say, oh, look at all the things that, are, that aren't there. How can yep. this platform be useful for anything? And then hey, I spent a month kind of being angry about that. And then I, I started looking at it some more and going, well, wait a minute. You can actually build this kind of app and this kind of app and this kind of app. And then as soon as you start putting that together with, and it will cost me less money, and I don't have to wait for my IT shop to eventually put a machine in for me or to tell me they're not going to yep. do it, then you, you start thinking about it and go, this is really just a paradigm difference, and you have to think about it a little differently than just here's the blow-by-blow the -blow feature comparison. There will be yeah. things that the regular box product does because it has years and years and years to develop this, this huge ecosystem of things that it can do. And we're not really trying to make it so that you can just port your applications with a lift and shift yeah. easily. We're trying to make it so that you can build solutions that leverage the platform. And what you really need to think about is when you start getting into transactional queuing to consider the example. A scale-out platform, you'll actually want to separate different functions of your application and have them potentially be on different databases anyway because you'll be able yeah. to then leverage the fact that that can be on a different machine using different isolated computing resources than other parts of your application and your data tier. And, and that's really where you start to actually see the, the light bulbs go on in people's heads and they go, oh, I see. I assume that I should put a queue in my database. Well, the real question should be, what, what's the data flow that you want your application to have? And then what's the resource needs of each part of that data flow? And once you start yeah. trying to write all that out, then the answer about what way you can build that on a scale-out platform can often be quite different than a scale-out platform. 
Actually, it's an interesting point you raise there too, because when we were mentioning federations a minute ago and the idea that uh, a table might be sort of spread across a whole lot of uh, underlying databases, and it's interesting that the question comes back about, you know, why can't I do a fan-out query? But I often think that's actually the wrong question because part of the reason for wanting to push that out to all those things is that the that I could be doing a query from the app, for example, in parallel to each one of those at the same time. I, I don't know that I really do want to be sending one query down and having it span out anyway. Well, Greg, you remember I'm, I'm a QP guy, so I always want to do fan out queries. But uh, <laughs> I, I think that the way you would look at it is there's some operations like OLTP commands where you just really, in order to get the scale out to work, you want to just touch that one node exactly. So you don't want to go yeah. through some routing node. And in other cases, you might want to do a report for your whole service to say, hey, how many people do I have? And that report you might want to run once a week. And it doesn't yep. necessarily mean you have to touch them all in parallel. It might be that there's lots of different algorithms you can use to effectively get that answer. And mm. figuring out ways to make it easy to use that scale-out platform to solve each of those different kinds of use cases is something that uh, hopefully we'll be showing you more in the future. Yeah. Listen, another one I should touch on is that uh, I get the question from people all the time about what are my options for backups and restores. Yeah. And I mean, you know, they, they accept that you're doing a great job of looking after it, but they also want to roll back or they, you know, things, there's just things they want to do. And so they, they feel like they want more control in that area. Yeah. So today, SQL Azure automatically backs up your databases for you. And it uh, provides you this high availability guarantee to say, hey, I'd like to be able to make sure that if I commit something that it will really commit, and if I lose the machine right away, then you can keep your data. So that part is there, and we're constantly providing that guarantee for a backup restore standpoint. But let's say that you wanted to do other operations, right, where you want to save a copy of your database just in case a user change that you're going to make goes bad. Let's say you're upgrading your your application yeah. here and changing your database and you mess it up halfway through. How do you get back to your pre-upgrade state? So we have this import-export service, which I think is a first offering in the space rather than a final offering in the space, but it gives you mm -hmm. some of the technology that you need to be able to take a snapshot at a particular point in time and uh, then restore it back later. There's also a technology we have to create a copy of your database where we can do create database as copy of and then in a few minutes, you'll have a copy of your database on the same cluster. So if that application... And actually, subtle that. subtle difference there, too. Um, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that when you do the export, that's not actually a transactionally consistent one. But if you do a copy of, create a copy of the database, you do get a transactionally consistent copy. And so they were saying if you want to export a transactionally consistent one, you'd actually make a copy, then export it instead. Yes, Greg, you're, you're right. As the technology currently stands, there's no transactional guarantee directly on the export. So if you have other operations happening uh, on the database, then you'd want to think about how consistent it needs to be or do the operation that you described to get a copy that is quiescent so that you can export it in a transactionally yep. consistent manner. So these technologies are not a full set of solutions, right? We don't have the ability mm. to say, I want to restore from last week's copy of our backup that we have in the back end, for example. And we don't have the ability to give you a fully transactional export that works great all the time. Uh, we're still in the process of improving those technologies. And I think you'll find that we also um, are interested in, in providing that, that, that additional level of control for customers so that yeah. you have ability to understand what they can do and, and what are their options for, for dealing with that. Uh, one point that I'll make is that this is a, a game where at the end of the day, you have to pay for the storage or you have to pay for the, the compute resources that you're using. So storing an indefinite number of backups is not something that we can do, but we will yep. hopefully provide options so that customers that need longer backup retention policies or they have these more specialized desires around exactly what order they want to do backups and restores will have the ability to do so and at, at a reasonable cost. So we're looking at what is the, the model for how do we expose that so that they can really get what they need. Actually, I think it's probably worth noting too the the idea that when I copy a database, I create another database. But if I do an export, what I'm actually doing is sending things to Azure Storage instead. Right. You're creating essentially a, a backpack. A blob, yeah. And putting, <laughs> it out, and putting it out in Windows Azure Blob Storage. 
And this is a different model, right? It's effectively like a file system, but you're paying for the storage. And this is no different than any of the other hosting models, effectively, but, but it's a different model for those who are used to just having the box product. And yeah. figuring out how to manage, well, what's the story for how much do I store and how big is it and how do I make sure I get uh, everything, every dollar spent wisely is going to require some thought to make sure that you get the, the model right because we're, we're exposing the cost mm-hmm. effectively. Uh, this is the cost to do it plus our overhead to run the service. And then yep. you have to go figure out, well, what's, the, what's my business need? And the interesting mm-hmm. aspect is every time I talk to a new business, I come up with a different answer for that based on you know, what's their revenue model and how, what, what's their overhead and what are their biggest concerns, right? So if you're a financial firm, then backups are very, very key. Right? If you're yeah. just doing uh, trading of football cards or baseball cards or whatever, then maybe it's not quite as important if it's down yeah. for a day, right? So that, that's sort of the picture that you need to think about. And then the answer will come out very differently as a result. Yeah, I think uh, the other thing is uh, I must have been in recent times they seem to have dropped the price of the storage significantly, and I, if if anything, the reaction I get from people is just surprised as to how low it is. Actually, uh, people seem quite happy with the storage costs. Uh, I think you're going to find that there'll be continued competition on price to make sure that we provide a, a great option for customers. This is ultimately an option that is intended to save customers money. And obviously yeah. there's a transition cost and then there's this notion of figuring out how to use the platform. But you'll have a lot of options that will just be cheaper because we've built a lot of software that automates many of the things that would require uh, a human to go and do the work otherwise. So if we give you options to guarantee that the database is always available so you can always restore from this copy and we do so without requiring people to do anything except replace hard drives as they die, well, that's going to be a lot cheaper than what most people who are not in the IT business can do for themselves. Yeah, and and the th- that's another good point. I mean, even before when you're talking about the fact that you keep three copies of the data, I mean, it, it's a very rare site I would walk into that pe- that anybody does that now. Uh, let alone, yeah, the the fact that that's available is is excellent. But I I think the big story for the businesses is the agility. Actually, that's that's when I look at the whole picture. That's one of the ones I think is just the the su- such a compelling story, the uh, the idea that uh, I, I go into sites like a site I was at yesterday, and I mean whenever they talk about provisioning a server, they no- normally talk in terms of you know weeks or months, and the idea that I could just spin up another server and you know in a few minutes later there's a server sitting there I could start working against that, and the idea that that comes out of uh, recurrent expenditure instead of capital expenditure. Uh, there's just a lot of compelling business argument there. Yeah, this is definitely uh, one of the demos that we like to show people. Is you sort of walk up, and you run Create Database, and less than a few minutes later, you're up and running with the database. You didn't have to do anything except put a credit card number in. And yeah. that's very, very different. For anyone who's had to go and provision a server before, uh, it can take weeks or months to get uh, approval, get the machine, get the, get the space, get everyone to say yes to be able to do something very, very basic sometimes. And yeah. now all you have to say is, look, it'll cost you this, and you can have it. Or if you want a new database, here it is, have it. And uh, I think that that will work for a lot of cases that customers today don't realize how, how hard and how expensive it is for them to go through that yeah. visiting process. Yeah, I, th- I think people should not underestimate how 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 much of an impact that's going to have. I, I think just that, that agility is is the key thing. The um, another question that we should mention too, I suppose, is connectivity. Now, uh, we do need to make HTTPS connections or SSL connections, uh, and at the moment, um, SQL Server authentication is the other option there. Yes. And so, so well, obviously, we have the SSL because there's passwords flowing over the internet. Yep. And that's for customer safety. So that goes back to the point that we've look through the end-to-end picture and try to decide what are the policies that make the most sense for a hosted environment like this. The, yep. uh, the issue with, what was the other question you had? Oh, it was just the, uh, at the moment, we're very much SQL authentication. Oh, yeah. And I suppose that's the other question I do keep getting is the whole, what about if we want to hook up with some other sort of authentication provider or something? I think you'll find that more... Or, or Windows, yeah. Uh, ...will be coming. And it's just a question of, when we can make those available to you, not lack of desire on our side. So we, we yeah. obviously uh, know that that's something 
customers want, and we actually also want customers to be using those other options as well. So building full solutions that make sense in a cloud architecture take a little bit of time to get right, and we're in the process of trying to get that. So don't uh, don't stop looking. You'll you'll probably yeah. see something in the not too distant future. I suppose the other two that I want to mention first up first one is Data Sync, and uh, that's another service that's available. Yes, I haven't looked to see if it's still in preview or not. I think it is, uh, but yep. this is sort of a, a replication-like technology that we have for moving stuff around. And uh, I haven't used it that much myself, but it, it does uh, give you kind of this ability to say, I want to tie together my on-premise system and my, my SQL Azure database and try to keep them in, in line. Yeah, yeah. It seems uh, basically it seems to be based around change tracking, and from and it has very straightforward options if you're just doing uh, uh, Azure database to Azure database. I mean that's like really really easy. But then they have a, a an agent service that you install on Windows if you want to connect up an on-premises machine into the same thing. But uh, again, a place I was at yesterday was sort of looking at. Uh, 70 or 80 stores and having sort of centralized data and stuff and the data sync looks like it'll be a very very strong potential story for that because at the moment they're having to have their head office sort of with connectivity issues to and from all the different stores and things and uh, there is something nice about having a, a hub uh, sitting in the cloud that each of the stores connect to independently and, and they sync with that as well I, I think that's actually going to end up being a very good story yeah, I think that for customers that have these hybrid solutions where they want to be able to have their on-prem story talk to the cloud story, this is going to be a great way for them to have that. These disconnected application scenarios show up all the time, and giving customers those options to, to be able to effectively build these solutions is, is the business we're in, right? So I think yeah. if, you, if you have customers that have problems with it or, or have feedback, obviously send it our way. Uh, but overall, I haven't heard too much negative about it yet. It's just when is it going to be out, and I don't have uh, yeah. Yeah, I noticed the, uh, well, I mean, the, the agents and things have been out uh, in a preview, as you say, publicly available preview and things. But I think the agent's up to about the seventh revision of it or something. It's, it's getting fairly mature at this point. So, Yeah, and I, I don't think that uh, I would characterize it as something that hasn't been invested in or anything. It's, it's just yeah. the when they're going to actually officially say it. And I haven't, I haven't talked to the guy in charge of the team in a little while uh, to see what mm. the current thought process is. But I would suspect it's not. Uh, too far. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a pretty good story that one, and uh, and the other one that's uh, I suppose rounding out the uh, the story at the moment that they've released recently is uh, is the Windows Azure SQL reporting as well. Yes, so the reporting services stuff is just new, and we uh, first put out a version of that not too long ago, and I think that you're going to find that the whole ecosystem of what you're used to in the SQL Server Box product is going to have equivalent in most cases on. Yeah. platform. And it'll work a little differently in the sense that uh, you know you have to think about provisioning um, just like you do for the box. And it's a, it's a story where you have to worry about what are the costs associated with running each piece. But running reporting services is going to make a lot of sense, especially near your data. And you'll want to be able to, to have great options there. So we, we want to have a whole suite of those solutions. And you'll see that other parts of the system that are not there right now, you'll probably see those come up in the future as well. Yeah, I suppose it should mention at the moment that it very much is for reporting just off Azure data uh, yeah. as well. And yeah, again, there's a, a number of things that are on-premises it doesn't do, but what it does lend itself very nicely to is uh, embedded reporting in web apps that uh, are sitting in Azure and based on Azure data. It uh, lends itself quite well to that. Um, in fact, the only the only downside I've been hearing about that one is uh, like I was saying people are really surprised how low the cost is for the the storage one I'm actually getting the reverse reaction in terms of the reporting one um, and but uh, that's some feedback I'm sort of sending back to the team I, I uh, uh, just keep hearing the the way it's structured at the moment they 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 have a sort of a fee that's based on whether you use it or not sort of thing and uh, it, it just seems out of proportion to the rest of the, the pricing of the, the other products. So uh, it, it's going to be interesting. Uh, but anyway, I'll, I'll be feeding that back to them to see how it goes. But I, I think the idea, again, of, of having the agility to be able to spin up a reporting server and uh, have that sit straight over the top of it straight away in, in in a very short period of time, it really is quite impressive. Right. I'll I'll uh, talk to the team when I next see them to see what their current thoughts are. But I think you'll find in a mm. number of these cases the 
pricing is something that even in the regular Windows uh, SQLizer database stuff, we've we've modified the pricing once or twice as we learn about the yeah. market and figure out the way to make sure that we deliver the right value proposition to customers. So if you find that there's cases where it doesn't quite line up with what the value is to your business, then keep giving feedback to the company and mm. we'll keep taking it into account. This is one of those cases where in the past, you know, we would set the pricing for our box product and that would be that would be it, right? Maybe three years yeah. later we might revise it again. Um, here you'll find that we'll continue to look at what are the market pressures and what are the things we have to do in mm-hmm. order to grow our platform. It's a brand new game and we're having a lot of fun with it, but doesn't mean that the very first iteration is always perfect. And that's that's yeah, one thing I'll ask customers to be patient about and just remember if you find that it doesn't work, show us what you're thinking, and that's obviously great input for us mm. to be able to revise our future pricing. Yeah. And listen, the final thing I want to ask you about in terms of tooling is uh, I also get asked about things like the equivalent of profiler or extended events or something in terms of tracing or things like that. It's the, you know, how do I do something equivalent to that when I'm working against these sort of databases? And I just wonder, is there any guidance around anything like that at present? So there is no current X-Event or SQL Profiler story, which is unfortunate. Um, it's a little difficult to get a full solution that works 100% the same way as the box. Yeah. But uh, there's also a ton of value to be had in being able to do tracing. So mm. I would say that at some point in the future, you'll find that there'll be something that works for you. It may not be yeah. exactly perfect, but it will it'll come up and give you many of the same use cases that you have mm. now. So this is an area where we're very aware that this is a need. Uh, there's other technologies where sometimes people use tracing and they can use other things. And in some of those cases, we may be delivering other technologies instead where we feel like we can just solve the problem more easily in, in certain yeah. subsections of what you would otherwise trace. But the ability to trace is very, very valuable. And the way I would describe it is there's a need to trace both the back-end database, which traditionally yep. has been X events on the box, and also an ability to trace uh, from the client perspective, from the SQL client perspective. Yep. And this world will uh, evolve as well, and you'll find that figuring out how to effectively trace, mine, and manage these systems is actually key, especially when you start running at these scales that I see in these large customers I'm working on. Because hmm. if you have one database and you're trying to, to, to debug it, you can trace it. And you look at it manually, and life is good. If you're trying to run a service with 1,000 databases or 10,000 databases or 100,000 databases, then all of a sudden having a single person go and look at all the traces seems a little silly, and you have to think a little differently about what does it mean to be successful in this world because you really can't look at every single issue. You have to think about it statistically and worry about what's the scope of my biggest problem this morning and then work on the next biggest problem, and then sometimes problems will just recur until they become big enough to worry about because there's a separation mm-hmm. in this world between getting the system back working again to understanding the root cause of every issue. Sometimes it's a lot cheaper to solve the former than the latter, and separating those two is very difficult for engineers like myself, but once you start thinking about those two points distinctly, then you can say, you know what, sometimes the problem is solved by just failing over the node, and that's the fastest yeah. way to get the customer working again. And then we can work on how do we catch and solve the issue about root cause statistically instead of individually with a debugger on that particular yeah. construction machine right now. Yep. No, that's great. Listen, that's that's been an excellent summary of where things are at. Thanks, Connor. That's great. And listen, is the, is uh, for people's interest, I suppose, is there a life out, outside SQL Server? Uh, um, so uh, is there anything else you're passionate about apart from the pro- the product and or family or something, I suppose, but uh, anything else beyond that? Uh, yeah, I've been spending a lot of time on SQL, SQL Server and SQL Azure the past 12 months, but I will tell you that I'm a big sports fan. I like uh, ah. I like ice hockey. I like uh, American football, both college and professional. I'm actually yep. a big fan of Australian rules football as well, although it's not on television much here. It's, I, it's, I an, it's an amazing game. Yeah. yeah. I, I spent many years completely confused because they never explained to Americans what exactly the rules are. And I, I just thought well, you, that... The, you mean there are rules? Yeah. Uh, well, that, that, uh, it, it took some time for me to discern any sense of rules. Uh, maybe they're unofficial or gentleman handshakey rules, but... <laughs> uh, I do like sports, and I'm also a big soccer fan. So we have oh, um, a bunch of things that I like to, to deal with here. I've been 
trying to teach my six-year-old daughter American football. So each year I take her to one or two games and see if I can convince her to understand the difference between offense and defense. Uh, so far, she likes uh, cotton candy, which is what you get at football yes. games here. So that's, that's, the <laughs> that's excellent. Actually, my my wife, uh, it's funny, uh, which is weird as an Australian, I grew up uh, playing baseball. And so uh, uh, that's been sort of a passionate thing for me for a long time. But I finally got to take my wife to a baseball game in the U.S. Uh, a year or two back. And it, it, was, it was kind of interesting because it was just amazing for me that she'd never been to a game. So. No, I mean, it's great to go see those things, and it's, it's an area where I like the competition aspect of it, and I think it's it's wonderful when your team does well and sad when your team doesn't do well, and you have to kind of go root for them either way. And uh, that's one of the things I like to do to sort of unwind. I, I'm also uh, into gardening here at the house, and mm. uh, my wife and I are really big into traveling, so we like to go visit other other countries and see uh, what's different about other places? And so we, we spend time trying what's, to take What's the favorite time. place you visited? Uh, well, my, 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 spot, I'd say that if I had to pick one place that we all like, uh, we're all big fans of Paris. My daughter mm-hmm. has been in a French preschool, so she can speak French now. And so we Excellent. like to take her back there to practice her French. We don't let her eat unless she orders in French. So, the waiter. <laughs> so I'd say that's probably one place that we really enjoy. Um, my family is originally from Ireland, so I obviously mm. love Ireland as well. But uh, we're, we're actually, I think the what what part of I was going to say the southwest corner of Ireland I think is around amongst my favourite parts of the world. So uh, it's beautiful there. My I have family in Cork, which is in the south of Ireland, mm-hmm. and also County Cork. Yep. Uh, my my I have some friends uh, and relatives in the north of Ireland as well. So my parents are mm. both technically from the north. And uh, now some of my extended family lives in the South and and also in England. So this is uh, a space where we just love to go visit people and and see new things. And that's something that I have a passion for. So we plan our trips. And in fact, I was just planning a trip for next year. And and we sort of think about it ahead of time. And it's it's something we really look forward to. That's great. Listen, so is there anywhere people will see you coming up? Any events or... Thing? Right. This is a good question. I um, I believe that my next speaking engagement officially will be at Sequel Rally in Denmark in mm-hmm. October. Uh, I need to put some info on my blog on this, actually, because I just booked the trip uh, in the last few days to make sure that I got there on time. I have yep. been spending a lot of time, um, obviously, working on this sort of cloud service vendor architecture stuff, and yep. I'll be talking, I think, at that conference about, about query optimizers there, but mm-hmm. I also visit a lot of customers one-on-one, and that's sort of the, a lot of the conversations we're still having in that space because they're so new yep. or under NDA. Uh, I don't believe that I'll be speaking at fast this year, but I mm-hmm. will probably do, I do sometimes do speak, uh, talks for just the MVPs or just groups of insiders yep. and things like that. So I think that there'll probably be some things in that category as well. Um, I think that you, you'll typically see me at two or three conferences a year. I'll go out and find some place where I can go visit uh, and some customers I haven't seen before. I've been going to SQL yep. Bits for a number of years now. I gave one of the keynotes. Which is an excellent year. conference, yes. Yeah, and I, I really love visiting there. They're, the people there are great, and uh, it's just a wonderful setup. There. Everyone is, is great. I get lots of great questions from customers and get a lot of feedback to help us drive the product forward. I use this as an opportunity to really help drive what is the pulse of what our customers need back into the product team. And it's something that uh, I didn't realize how important it was. I knew it was important, but I didn't didn't really value exactly how important it was until we started trying to do this new platform. And fundamentally, we as an engineering team have had to get a lot better at listening to our customers, especially when we ship Mm -hmm. things in these monthly cycles. And that skill set that I developed for the past several years working with customers on the Box product has translated really well, and it's one of the reasons why they've asked me to spend more time on the SQL Agile product to help develop it for now. Yeah, that's great. Well, listen, thank you so very much for your time today, Connor. Hey, it's great. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners, and I, I hope to see you again soon. Maybe I'll get down to Australia. Indeed. <laughs> Could do. That's great. Uh,